0: of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at jake at christitychurch.ca. Would you stand now for the reading of God's word? And and as you're standing, uh, James will come forward and he'll read, but before he does that, you'll notice that James is also lighting a candle, which I love. Each Advent, we light candles because one of our values as a church, one of our core values, is that we're grounded in the history of the church. We're not doing anything new here. We're not very innovative as a group of people. Lighting candles at Advent is not just for decoration, though it is pretty, but it's actually a meaningful part of Christian tradition, uh, symbolizing the coming of Christ into the darkness. It's been done for millennia. Candles are lit as a contrast to the darkness in the same way, and we'll hear more about this this morning, that Jesus' advent was a contrast to the darkness of the world in which he arrived. As we light these candles this morning, we participate with the church at large, proclaiming the coming of Jesus, the light who continues to today illuminate our dark world. And So let's hear God's word together.
1: Today's scripture is from John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You may be seated.
0: And as you're being seated, let's pray together. Father, we just heard read to us in your word that in Jesus, we see your glory. And we confess, if we're being honest this morning, Lord, that your glory, for perhaps most of this week, if not all of this week, has eluded us. that what has felt most real and most imminent is darkness, and pain, sorrow and heartbreak, not, not your glory. And so we need your help. Would you, Father, come by your holy Spirit? And illuminate our minds, illuminate our hearts to behold the glory which Jesus came to shine into our hearts and our lives. We're eager, we're desperate uh, to sit and stand and walk in your light. Amen. John begins his gospel in the beginning. In the beginning. He's doing this on purpose. He's doing it on purpose. John wants us to hear how the Bible itself in Genesis begins. The first words of Genesis are, in the beginning. In the beginning. It is an audacious way to begin a gospel. It is almost arrogant to begin in the beginning. When you and I tell stories, we use phrases like, last night, or at my house, or perhaps if it's a particularly large story, in Vancouver, phrases that signal to our listeners that the story is not universal, not a meta-narrative, but a particular story, a small story. But John says to us on the first Sunday of Advent, and we hear, in The beginning. And of course, what he means is in the beginning of everything, at the beginning of the universe, at the beginning of all of our stories, at the beginning of it all. What, John? What? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Amen. John will go on to tell that this divine, eternally existing Word, who was and is and forever will be, is Jesus. And we saw that, right? John 1:14. And the Word, arrogance of arrogance, audacity of audacity, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. All of this, of course, means that each year, When we come to the season of Advent, which just means arrival, by the way. It's a church word for arrival. Advent. When we come to the season of Advent, the story we are being swept up in is not just one story among the many that are told and believed and lived into in our city. What we consider each Advent is the story. The capital S story. And not just the story for those of us who are religiously inclined, but the grand narrative in which every other narrative exists. See, our reoccurring celebration of Advent and the penning of those words by John both serve the same overarching purpose this morning, that we would begin to see that everything, what has been, what is, and what will be, that we would see everything as God does. And so Advent in its annual celebration, stubbornly and persistently, and maybe for some of us, annoyingly, pulls us from these smaller stories that we live by and forces us to once more align our lives with the truth of reality, with the story that matters. This morning we encounter, whether we know it or not, in 14 verses in John's Gospel, the story that each of us, knowingly or unknowingly, is a part of. In the words of the gospel writer John, it is a story ultimately about darkness and light. I'll show you it in three points. Darkness, light, and lamps. Darkness, light, and lamps. If you have your Bibles, John 1, to 1-5, read this with me again. Just follow along in your Bibles. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word is with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Genesis 1 tells us that before God created, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. The, the words here for formless and empty in the original Hebrew, maybe you remember this from our first Corinthians series, are these words tohu vabohu, tohu vabohu, formless and empty. This is the language of primordial chaos. And if that's too abstract, I think we feel today the despair and fear of. Tohu Vabohu, every time we lay awake at night and in a moment of doubt ponder, ponder the thought that perhaps what greets us after we die is disembodied nothingness. Chaos. Tohu Vabohu. Have you felt that before? It's paralyzing. There are a few things more terrifying. The Genesis account continues to tell us that it was into this formless and empty void, this chaos that God spoke, and through his speaking, God creates. But John peels back one more layer and says that it was in fact the Word, this person who was with God, who is God, who was in the beginning with God, through whom all things were made. Through him, light and life have come. See, Advent, we must know, is not the first time Jesus has brought light and life into a dark world. It's not the first time he's done this. And just as God spoke into a dark world then, so too does Jesus of Nazareth, the Word made flesh, find a dark world at his arrival. One theologian put it like this. The word challenged the darkness before creation and now challenges the darkness that is found, tragically, within creation itself. See, that our world is in darkness is a given in this story. Jesus will say in John 12, 46, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Just a little bit before that. So Jesus said to them, The light, me, is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, me, believe in the light, that you may become sons of the light. In John's gospel, we can understand darkness in in two ways. In two ways. First, and most obviously, darkness refers to some sort of moral disorder, moral chaos, what the Bible calls sin. In John 3, it's that thing that Jesus tells us that we've come to love, the darkness, our own sin. You know, just this past week on Wednesday at our evening of prayer and worship, I said that Christmas, that Advent, is a polarizing season, isn't it? It's a polarizing season. For some of us, it's, it's tremendously celebratory. And we're excited. And when Jacob said, you know, lift your voices, isn't it great to be here? You're like, I'm with you, Jacob. And yet for others of us, uh, you did not join in on that cheer. For others of us, it, it's a time to remember the ways that we've hurt and, and, and hurt others. The ways that we've been sinned against and, and sinned against others all evidence in in you being lonely by yourself and not where you should be or want to be. It's not just the shorter days that make Christmas feel so dark for some of us. But, But second in John, darkness also refers to some sort of ignorance, a degree of ignorance. You heard this in John 12. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. Born into darkness, having learned to love the darkness, what can one know of the light? Of true light. Again, this past week at our Wednesday evening of prayer and worship. Did I mention we have a Wednesday evening of prayer and worship? Once a month. Paul and I, we came in to find in the lower hall downstairs, there was decorations with images and quotes that were new age, even pagan in nature, and it was disturbing and as anyone who is present will tell you on Wednesday, at first I was angry. Angry. But as the Spirit of God grabbed hold of my heart, my anger, while remaining rightly on the evil, subsided for the people. Subsided for those who are clearly grasping in the dark from, for some sort of meaning and purpose in this life. For our neighbors, our literal neighbors doing whatever it takes, worshiping sun, moon, and stars, ingesting psychedelics, creating new identities, whatever it takes to feel some connection to the transcendent, some connection to meaning. If our hearts are to be truly filled with awe and wonder and celebration this Advent season, we must first reckon with the darkness. Every year, Around the world, uh, at theaters uh, around the world, uh, George Friedrich Handel's Messiah is, is played, is sung. Uh, if you know Handel's Messiah, it is an oratio, which is like a, a not-as-fancy opera. An opera is like costumes and stage and all that kind of stuff. And the oratio is just singing. And there's, a, there's an orchestra accompanying these wonderful voices. And if you know Messiah specifically, you know that Messiah, when Handel wrote it, is just littered with Scripture. It's fascinating to go down to the Orpheum and to hear people who don't love Jesus or know Jesus or worship Jesus sing about Jesus. It's super weird, actually. And they're singing Isaiah. They're singing Scripture. It's it's beautiful. What some of us don't know, however, is the world in which Handel's Messiah came to us. See, Handel's Messiah comes to us uh, while the Enlightenment is in full swing, When human confidence in itself was at its perhaps highest it's ever been. The religion of the day, deism, taught that uh, while God had created us, since we're so great and so capable, and look at this science that we're discovering, uh, we can handle it from here. We can do it on our own. It became fashionable at that time, even in the church, to affirm the goodness of Jesus, but to deny his deity. Deny that he was God. What need do we have for a Messiah? The Enlightenment thinker said, even supposed Christians said, look at all we can accomplish. That was the spirit of the age. Of course, if you know history, the Enlightenment would give way to the two bloodiest centuries on record. We would kill each other. Tremendously and brutally, over the course of the 19th and 20th century. And together, those centuries would act as incontrovertible evidence, not of the innate goodness of humanity, but of our innate lostness. Humanity in its sin going deeper into the dark. Humanity in its foolish ignorance fumbling around for meaning, all the while moving further and further away from the light. It is against this bleak backdrop we now consider the turning point in our story the moment that Advent is all about. This is point number two, light. How does God respond to darkness? What help does he offer us? Well, we could say it like this, and I'm not overstating it. Advent is a celebration of God in Jesus giving us everything. Everything. It's as if we, we went to sleep the night before Christmas, on Christmas Eve, expecting to find under the tree some cheap plastic dollar store gift and instead have woken up to find that we are up to our eyeballs in God's blessing. There's, there's, there's no limit to what he has given us in Christ. And so I just want to, for a moment, lay out three gifts. Three gifts Jesus being the light gives us as we celebrate Advent. And just a note... I wanted to say this, as we've heard already. If your heart starts to soar in praise and an amen or hallelujah comes out, let it out. Amen. Because this, this is what we're here, here to do. Yes? So first gift. The light of Jesus saves. Verse 4 reads like this. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, or, or all people. Now look at verses 9 to 13. The true light In the world of the Bible, a world that John and his readers would have been very familiar with, there are countless examples, countless illustrations of God's people being rescued through light. Through light. Instances of God's people hopelessly in the dark, overcoming their circumstances through some sort of illuminating assistance. So let me just show you one instance. In Genesis 15, but going back to Genesis. In Genesis 15, we find Abraham, the man from whom all Israel would come. And he's having a dream. And while Abraham is dreaming, we're told, Behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Tohu v'bohu. Dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. It turns out that the dread and the terror which Abraham was experiencing was prophetic. It symbolized, it pointed to the 400 years of slavery that Israel would experience under Egyptian oppression. It's tohu Vibohu, dread and great terror. But in the midst of this darkness, there is a promise of deliverance. And to seal the covenant, the promise between God and Abraham, God shows him that he will keep his word to save his people. And God sends two symbols of his awesome presence, both involving fire, both involving light a smoking fire pot, and a flaming torch. Many years later, the prophecy has come true. Israel is under Egyptian oppression again, but God has not forgotten his word, and so he appears to Moses in a burning, light-emitting bush, which, by the way, is the argument for Christmas trees, right? The burning bush in Exodus. That's the argument. God did it first. That's bad Bible reading, in case you're wondering. But after God appears in this illuminating way, he's led Israel out of Egypt. He guides them, how? By a pillar of cloud in the day and by night, Exodus 13, 21, in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they may travel by day and night. I mean, on and on and on and on we could go, and you don't want me to do that. But we're going to see this in our Exodus series in January. Right? God judges Egypt with what? Darkness. And he preserves Israel with what? Light. But when Joshua right, is fighting, right, he makes the sun stand still in the sky until his enemies are vanquished. When Gideon in Judges 7 is trying to overthrow the oppression of the Midianites, right, they go out 300 men with torches. God is always, he's repeatedly, it's everywhere in the Bible, delivering his people through light. Through fire, through illumination, light and salvation go hand in hand in the Bible. It's why the psalmist prays in Psalm 43, send out your light and your truth, let them lead me, let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. But all these lights in the Old Testament were merely faint flickers, compared to the megawatt illumination of Jesus, the light of the world, who saves all who would turn to him. Jesus, as the light, saves. Second gift. Jesus, the light of the world, overcomes, is not mastered by the darkness. I don't know if you thought about light for a second, but, but it, it's truly like a, a, a mind trip. That's the only way I can describe it. It's a mind trip. Light is incredibly resilient. And so just go with me for a second on a a thought experiment. Um, Imagine for a moment that you and I were to dig a hole in the ground a mile deep. A mile deep. It's dark down there. And at the bottom of that hole, we were to build a home. A home without windows. A home made only with concrete. Layers upon layers of concrete. And then in the center of that home, we we place a chest. And in the back corner of the top left drawer of that chest, we were to place a glow worm. Is there a darker place in the world than in the back left corner of that chest down this hole in this concrete home? All of our work, all of our labor, all of the stuff that has led us into this blinding darkness could not stop even this tiny glow worm from emitting light and pushing back darkness in that drawer. This thought experiment comes from an author named Andrew Wilson, and he goes on to compare the ease with which the glowworm overcomes the darkness as teaching us something fundamental about the nature of good and evil. He writes this. Listen. The difference between good and evil is not a back-and-forth struggle between competing opposites. We do not believe in a yin and a yang. It's not like Star Wars where people are just like light-side, dark-side, back-and-forth. That's not the Christian religion. However, it is more like the difference between light and darkness, or between being and nothingness. Evil has no existence of its own any more than darkness does. It is merely the absence of something good, like a shadow or a hole in your sock. So when the light of God's goodness shines, listen, there is no negotiation, no tug of war or struggle with the powers of darkness. Evil flees. Falsehood is driven out by the light of truth. Death is banished by the light of life. See, when John says, verse 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it, John is writing reflectively on the life and the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. He's already looking ahead to the moment when Jesus will tell his disciples in John 16, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But then again, listen to this. Take heart, Jesus says. I have overcome the world. In the megawatt resurrection of Jesus, we find not a glow worm illuminating a drawer in a hole in the ground, but the cosmic powers of death and darkness and evil are brought to their knees. A light that shone first at the beginning of creation, then in a manger in Bethlehem, and then from the empty tomb outside of Jerusalem, has now made its way across time to us, to me and to you. There is no tug of war, there is no negotiation, indeed darkness flees at the coming of the light. Third gift. Jesus the light shows us the kind of relationship God wants to have with us. Verse 14 reads, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glorious of the only son from the father. One of the big themes of John's gospel is that if you want to know the Father, you should get to know Jesus. If you want to see the Father, you should behold and sit under and look at Jesus. Just a few verses later, John will build on this. In one translation, it reads like this. No one has ever seen God. The only one, himself God, says Jesus, who is in closest fellowship with the Father, has made God known. Here's what this means. It means that the the mighty, saving Jesus, the one who rescues and overcomes the darkness, strong Jesus, is also the tender Jesus, inviting all who would believe in his name into the same relationship that he has eternally had with his heavenly Father inviting all who would believe in his name into the bosom with him of the Father. The, the phrase, we I mean, keep the, uh, the verse on the screen, the phrase, closest fellowship with the Father. Do you see that? Your ESV reads, at the Father's side. It could also be translated, Jesus is close to the Father's heart. And we might say, well, good for Jesus. Good for him. Until we find out that Jesus has come to invite us into that same relationship with the Father. See, it's no accident that John's gospel, it's winding down. We go to John 13, and as Jesus is eating his last meal with his disciples, we find John, the gospel writer, one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table, same language, at Jesus' side. And honestly, the ESV, this translation, is being a bit prudish here. It's being a bit conservative. John, who has the audacity to say that Jesus loves him, is in Jesus' bosom. Like he's in his chest. And and for men who are like like unfamiliar with intimacy, like with other men in like a friendship platonic kind of way, this makes us a bit squeamish and uncomfortable. But John is resting his head in Jesus' chest. John has heeded the invitation of John 1.18 that Jesus is close to the Father's heart and now he too is with Jesus close to the Father's heart. I can't think of a more inviting and life-giving invitation in a season that is so often filled with insecurities where our shortcomings are so apparent to us than to rest today to know today that you are loved and invited into the same relationship, the same intimate relationship that Jesus has always had with his Father. I can't think of a better invitation. Last point, lamps, lamps. Turn with me one last time, John 1, verses 5 to 8. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then John kind of goes rogue here. It says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He's talking about John the Baptist. A couple of Johns here. There's John the Gospel writer and then John the Baptist. That all might believe through him. John came to point to the light. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. This is the point. If Jesus is resurrected... If Jesus is ascended to the right hand of the Father, how does his light shine today? With Jesus' leaving, with his ascension, are we not plunged back into darkness? Remember, keep in mind, it's likely that John wrote this gospel around 50 to 60 years after Jesus' life and ministry. Jesus has long ago ascended to the right hand of the Father. But the tense, and keep John 1:5 up there if we can, The tense of John 1.5 isn't meant to be read as the light once shone in the darkness or the light used to shine in the darkness, but the tense, the verbiage tells us that the light still shines today, still overcomes today, 50 years after his resurrection and ascension, 100 years after his resurrection and ascension, 1,000 years, 2,000 years today after his resurrection and ascension. The light still shines today. How? Through everyone who bear, like John, bears witness to the light. Through people like John the Baptist. 33 times in John's gospel we find this verb, to bear witness to. Apparently John wants us to do something. Bear witness, he says. Bear witness, bear witness. I have come to bear witness. How does the light of Christ shine at Advent. How does the light of Christ shine in every season? We could say, as all those who bear witness go out with his light like little lamps. Like lamps. Lamps, let me remind you, are not designed to be hidden. You don't throw a sheet over a lamp or tuck it in a drawer, in a home, in a hole in the ground. You place it on a hill. You place it on a hill. Jesus came to give light to everyone, that all who do receive him, who believe in his name, he gave and he gives today the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This Advent, turn to Jesus, the light of life. Bear witness to Jesus wherever you go so that more and more children of God might find themselves in the Father's bosom. Let's pray. Lord, it is intimacy with you. It is fellowship with you. It is life in the light with you that we seek and we truly long for this season. More than anything else. More than a pleasant dinner on Christmas Eve with our in-laws. More than that gift. Even more than just one night without fighting with the kids. We want you, Jesus. We want intimacy with you. So forgive us our sins. Forgive us the ways in which we've said no to your light, preferring our darkness. Lord, lead us, we pray. Fill us with your Spirit. Would we be a light set on a hill in this neighborhood that many would become children of God? In Jesus' name, amen.